Hey, East meets West listeners. Today, we're diving into the fascinating world of Baidu, often hailed as the Google of China. Baidu, founded in 2000, has emerged as one of the largest internet companies globally with a suite of innovative products and services. In this episode, we focus particularly on the differences between Baidu's autonomous vehicle project and Google's Waymo. We then finish up with a discussion about Baidu's ErnieBot and whether it can compete with ChatGPT. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to the East Meets West podcast, a podcast about understanding Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. My name is Dan. Joining me, as always, Albert. How are you doing? Dan, I'm going really good. It's had a busy week, uh, but yeah, overall feeling good. How are you? Doing well. Week two of settling into Indonesia. Um, still finding my way a little bit, but about to check out some apartments uh, just after recording this. So that'll be uh, good fun. Nice. What's um like? What's the area you're looking at? Can, can you um, compare it to areas so, that would be familiar with? Oh, so in Jakarta it's called SCBD. So it's kind of like being in um, near the city, near the CBD. Um, there's some. Um, more trendy kind of spots a little bit outside of that, which I guess would be the equivalent of like Surrey Hills um, in Sydney. So a lot more bars, that kind of thing. But that's probably the area I'm looking at. Nice. That's pretty cool. Is there like a type of apartment that you're looking for? Or are you looking for like, is there townhouses in Jakarta? Like what's the deal? Yeah, no, no townhouses in my price range or my areas that I, I want to look into. It's mainly, you know, what you'd expect from a commercial kind of apartment. Um one bedroom, maybe two bedroom, if I feel like I want to spread out. Um, but Albert, the people did not tune in to hear about Dan's real estate uh, once. They tuned in because this week we're talking about Baidu, sometimes described as the, the Google of China. So we're going to do a bit of a shallow dive into Baidu. What jumped off the page when you first started doing your research? Yeah, I think for Chinese, Google is a really good way to look at it. They're the number one search app in China. They've got a pretty crazy market dominance, about 72% of market share when it comes to search. Um, Baidu is a pretty interesting business. So you, they were describing themselves, say, back in, in 2019 as um, they are predominantly a search business that's enabled by AI. And now they've kind of completely shifted how they describe themselves. In 2023, they've just filed their annual report. Uh, I'm just quoting verbatim. We are the leading AI company with a strong internet foundation. We've been consistently investing in AI since 2010 to solidify technology and advancement. It's a pretty big difference to how they think about their business back in the day in 2019. Uh, they uh, describe themselves as they make complicated technology simpler. And we strive to achieve this using our two pillar strategy, mobile foundations and lead in AI. So you can start to see even in 2019, how they shifted their business from search into uh, like an AI led business. Yeah. So let's stay a little bit broad at the moment and just do a bit of a sweep over some of their main verticals. As you mentioned, Albert, they've got their search engine, which enables users to find information, websites, images, et cetera, uh, very much the equivalent of your Google or your Bing. Now they've also got, you know, their maps, Baidu maps, which is the same as Google maps. 
Baidu Baiki, which is an encyclopedia like Wikipedia, Baidu Cloud, which again, you could kind of compare to Google Cloud being that sort of B2B um, cloud platform. And then they've got Baidu for sort of autonomous vehicles. Uh, they've got the Apollo platform uh, underneath theirs where, you know, they're focusing in on all of that processing image recognition, et cetera, which goes into autonomous vehicle driving. And there are dis- differences between them and Google in that respect. Any other verticals I'm missing, Albert? No, it's, it's probably a good overview. I think the way I think about Baidu is they've got their consumer business, which is the things you were talking about, predominantly mobile. So search, you know, you're talking about maps, they've got health, uh, they've got a few kind of internal tools that they've spun out, kind of like Baidu Wiki or Baidu community boards and things like that. And then they've got obviously their enterprise business, which is the things you've touched upon, like public and private cloud, the cloud infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They kind of paint themselves as like a full stack AI business. And when they talk about full stack, they mean they have the cloud infrastructure layer, the kind of deep learning framework and the models that people use. And then they've got the applications that use uh, you know, their deep learning and their large language models like search and like maps. So I wanted to start off by looking at their autonomous vehicle division, Albert, just because I, I, when we were talking just before we started recording, we kind of talked in terms of like, well, what's the next step change going to be? And is Baidu or Google kind of operating in that space? And for me, the step change is autonomous vehicle driving. And I think it's really important here to kind of distinguish when people think about autonomous vehicles, they immediately think of Tesla. The key difference between what Waymo, which is Google's uh, vertical for uh, autonomous vehicles, and Baidu, what they're doing compared to Tesla, is Google and Baidu, they really focus on like a robo-taxi service. And so because of that, the way they've set up their AI and their system is they've really imported a detailed map. It's kind of geofenced is what you'd call it, where that vehicle operate extremely well in a defined area. For Tesla, which is a much more consumer-focused product and the same with you know GM and all the other motor, uh, motor vehicle companies, they got to let they got to give you a vehicle which you can take around the city, that you can take out into the country, that you can go on roads where you're not expected to go on, all that kind of thing. And so it's a much more, I guess, free form form of AI where it's got to be able to detect any random thing that could happen, a street which is closed off, et cetera. Whereas these robo taxis have kind of got this defined map which they're playing in like a sandbox. So very kind of different technologies within the autonomous vehicle space. Yeah, I, th- I think if anyone hasn't listened to some of our like AI or FSD episodes there's a few that we can check out you can check out like the tesla one and things like that that give you an overview into how um autonomous driving works i think for baidu and they've got a few now in practice i think they've got um 10 or so fully autonomous vehicles driving around a specific area of beijing Mm -hmm. so these are out there in the market and people are using them which is obviously very impressive but when it comes to autonomous driving there's a few different ways companies do it some use LiDAR and so different detectors that sense, you know, whether things are close or far away. Um, companies like Tesla use cameras and they ingest the, like the video feedback through some of their algorithms. Something that I do have done and done this really well is that they've actually open sourced all their like maps data. Mm. So then you can then see and leverage their maps data to build your own autonomous vehicle driving apps. 
And that kind of goes to their like multiple layer business, which is like, not only do they have the data and the application layer and the technology, they also then inbuild that into, you know, vehicles, which is a, it's a very impressive thing to play in multiple areas of the full driving stack, full, fully autonomous driving stack. Sorry. Yeah. And when we kind of piece apart that stack, that's where it's me, the main, maybe difference in Google's strategy to Baidu comes out which is at the moment Baidu is actually selling its navigation and technologies to automakers. You know, that's obviously one way of doing it. You can have the software to have an autonomous vehicle and you just sell it to car manufacturers and they plug it into their, their hardware. That, that's the approach that Waymo is going. They've made it very, very clear they're never going to build a car or they're not going to build a car. They're just providing the autonomous vehicle software. Baidu's not actually going down that route. They launched their own self-driving car brand called called Jidu, um, which will kind of come in at the family vehicle price of about $30,000. So they're clearly going down the route of they're going to combine up with manufacturers and they're going to kind of produce a car. Albert, what's your initial thought, just sort of thinking of that difference in, in strategy and approach between Baidu and Google? Yeah, it is pretty interesting. I think the way that uh, the frame I think about it is like, is Baidu the natural owner of a car? Like my the answer to that is probably mm. no. And that's why they've done it as a, a joint venture with an actual autonomous vehicle company. So it's not something that they've um, worked on completely by themselves. They've worked with another Chinese automaker called Geely, who will then mass produce it. So it's not like Baidu is building its own manufacturing competency. But it is a completely different game if you're predominantly a search business who has a lot of data, who then leverage that to then become a car manufacturer. Like that's probably why Google don't see themselves as doing that. And this is a consistent thing with a lot of Western companies as they stay in their lane. Like obviously Google have now started to manufacture phones with their Pixel, but it took them quite a long time after releasing Android in order to do so. Um... Whereas there's a lot of Chinese companies who not only build their own hardware, but they also build their own software. I think the thing with uh, Baidu that makes this a pretty interesting and compelling proposition is just like their market dominance in China. And then like the kind of competitive environment in China where there's predominantly only other Chinese companies that they're competing with. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. I mean, if if you just look at it conceptually, I, I don't know why you'd want to get into the manufacturing game for cars. We're seeing all the difficulties that your Volkswagens, your Fords, et cetera, are having at the moment. Pivoting is, to me, such a volatile area at the moment. And other people would see that as an area ripe for disruption and ripe to get into. But if you can just sell your software into that very, very competitive market, that low margin market of, of car manufacturing, to me, that seems like the better play. As you say, Albert, they haven't committed anything yet. They haven't bought up factories, et cetera. So they can really make that pivot later down the track once they see which way the winds are blowing. But to me, that's an interesting choice that they've made there. Do you think that this is like the next unlock for Baidu? So I guess to contextualize, Baidu is doing about 18 billion USD in revenue. Like that is a significant amount. And they've grown a bit, but not a lot. Obviously, when you're already at $18 billion of revenue, trying to grow year on year is a pretty monumental task and they're like cash flow positive. So they've got a lot of money to reinvest back into the business. Like is, is autonomous vehicles and pushing further into that stack, knowing that given that Baidu like to have 
layers of integration across the business. They probably will own manufacturing, that it just seems to be their MO. Is this the next like value unlock for this business? It absolutely is. You know, so if you look at the projected sales, uh, so they announced for the selling of navigation and other technologies to automakers, they're making about 1.5 billion based on agreements so far, which is, you know, out is of that, that 1.5 bi- bi- billion USD. Yep. So if you sort of transfer across, it's like about 5%. So it's not a significant slice of the pie, but not insignificant. And if you kind of project ahead, you know, at the moment they've got what they've got a, a range of sort of robo taxi concepts in, I think about three different cities, as you mentioned now, but they've just sort of got into Beijing. They can really scale that up. And if we're talking about who they're disrupting, it's every taxi on the road, it's Uber, it's Lyft, it's DD, all of those businesses, I feel like that's the runway which they can take completely for themselves with this sort of robo-taxi kind of system. Spin that forward, if you are just the software provider for consumer vehicles, that's an even bigger market you can unlock. You know, what's the probably second biggest expenditure that consumers going to make. First is their house. Second is probably the car. So I think there's just a huge amount of value they can unlock if this is sort of the direction of travel for them. And it's already producing a, a significant-ish amount of revenue for them. And I can very easily see the road ahead to expanding that out. Yeah, I think the challenge is that right now the way their data sets and how their self-driving cars are trained like they're trained in like what they call like tier one city. So they've obviously got their maps data and they're rolling out, you know, the car in Beijing. They also, there's also Apollo Go, which is like the underpinning mobile app that lets them do like ride hailing for autonomous vehicles and will let them do it in other cities. But their data sets are trained in those specific cities. And while China is highly centralized in some of those cities, there's obviously lots of people, giant TAM. I think to completely win and dominate the market and do like an incredible value unlock, they probably need to go much further than a handful of cities in China, which means they just need completely new data sets. Or they they need to start gathering and training their models to do that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. So just some context for the listeners, you know, particularly where they have been um, trialing these robo taxis at places like Wuhan and, and others. These are industrial cities, and the reason that they're picked is they've got wide roads because it's used to all these trucks and stuff going around, very few pedestrians, very few cyclists, that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of like a perfect sandbox for you to start these autonomous vehicle tests. When you move into a T1 city like Beijing, I'm at the moment in Jakarta, you start to get these sort of funny problems, and not all problems are equal, so you can't expect like a linear progression where your vehicle is going to go from not yet ready too ready as it pumps through those problems. One problem that it has to kind of solve is in these T1 cities with a bunch of traffic, it's not just like red light, everyone stops, green light, everyone goes. It's like red light, people are still kind of edging into the road, turning in, etc. And if you're programming an autonomous vehicle, it doesn't have the ability like a human to kind of edge your nose in front of traffic and slowly kind of merge in. It's just going to stop and wait for all the traffic to pass. So those are some problems. Like when I read about that one, I actually couldn't think what's a way that AI would solve for that. How can an autonomous vehicle actually solve the problem of edging into traffic? Those are difficult things. Yeah, for sure. And then that's why, you know, some of these companies use a combination of 
LiDAR and cameras or just cameras or, or just LiDAR because that additional level of like real-time information, not just like the map data, helps you do contextual things while you're driving, such as, you know, move around, follow the cars in traffic, park, watch out for pedestrians, watch out for animals, things like that. Albert, what do you want to hit next? Look, I think, you know, we've covered Baidu's um, driving business, which is one of their like uh, other growth initiatives, OGI is what they call it. I think the other thing that, that was worth talking about is Ernie, their new chatbot and their kind of new <laughs> GPT. I think it would be a bit amiss to talk about a business who describes themselves as like AI and provides every, every layer of AI without talking about Ernie. So I think I'm happy to kind of give a brief overview with Dan. I don't know if you, you watched their presentation like last month or the month before that around um, the Ernie launch. No, no, dig in. Yeah, I mean, it's classic. It was very similar to the other kind of GPT or chatbot launches, but it, it actually ended up being quite um, mediocre. And there was like a, quite a lot of like scathing articles written about how disappointing the Ernie bot was. I kind of want to contextualize it in something that the, the CEO of Baidu said on a podcast, which is like, if you got all the best engineers in the room, like all the best engineers in the world in this room, they couldn't replicate AI or they couldn't build AI because what you need is data. So that's why, say like, ChatGPT is doing really well, Bard's doing really well, is that it just ha has access to the, uh, this enormous amount of data. And that's something that Baidu has through search. They've got everyone's search history, records, they can do meta-analysis, they can do tagging of images, videos, etc. So that's their competitive advantage and enables them to build a chatbot in a, in a really effective way. However, that when they launched Ernie, it, it just probably didn't go in the same way they expected. There was a pretty big share drop of about 6%, um, given how like um, yeah, unusable it was. You know, lots of people on social media, particularly in China, kind of mocked it in, in, in the US as well. There was like a pretty scathing article in the MIT Technology Review called The, uh, the Bearable Mediocrity of Baidu's ChatGPT um, Competitor. People describe it as like just good enough for China. So I, I think it's pretty interesting <laughs> in that. Yeah, I, know, I know. It's pretty interesting in that um, they've got this incredible data set, but they just don't have uh, either the technology or the engineers to build something and utilize it. Um, and starting to unravel that, um, I started to look at like how often people are using Paddle Paddle, which is like their deep learning network. And this is something that enables AI. Uh, I won't go into anything more than that. Let's just like keep it at that. And it's doing like way worse compared to other um, deep learning networks like PyTorch and TensorFlow, not particularly popular on GitHub, which means people don't necessarily trust it. Reading comments on Reddit, people don't seem to want to use it. They say like the help manual and, and stuff, it's quite outdated. And so I think to me, it's just interesting to see like they've got, they describe themselves as an AI business, but from a developer community standpoint, there doesn't seem to be a huge uptake in what their AI actually is. That's interesting viewing it from that sort of ground up developer view of the product. What, what I kind of, what stood out to me just as you're describing that, and particularly as I've sort of tracked the, the rise of ChatGPT, is that when ChatGPT you know, 2 and, and some of the early iterations came out, it was pretty crummy as well. And so really what I'm thinking is, is, is the kind of blowback against Ernie 
just because at the moment it's being compared to ChatGPT4. And so there's kind of this sense of expectation about where it should be instead of just sort of projecting out into where it's going to be. And to me, it's very clear that this is an iterative process. And it's kind of strange that netizens or whoever's the analysts, they're kind of taking the short-term view, which is why isn't this product perfect now? When out of all the products there is, this is the one which you know starts slow and gets better over time. So to me, like some of those concerns really are transitory. I mean, Albert, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there anything kind of structural in the problems that Ernie's facing that you think won't be resolved over more time, more data getting plugged into it? I don't think it's necessarily structural and I'm sure that they can get resolved as like these models become more commoditized and people understand how to use them better. I just think that GPT-3 and Ernie, is, which is what they're being compared to, um, GPT-3 already outperforms Ernie. And th this is true for any other chatbot that GPT's outperformed. But GPT-3 was developed a number of years ago and was only launched to market, you know, late last year. And it was kind of hacked together in order to build like chat GPT as an interface for consumers. GPT-4 is now out. They're working on GPT-5. If ErnieBot is what, um, you know, they're releasing to keep up with, say, GPT-3, and that's already behind, it's hard to see how anything that the Baidu as a business is creating is going to be equal to, you know, that GPT-5. Like they're already potentially one or two generations behind. No, this is interesting. I want to keep going into this. Do you think this market at Albert is a winner-take-all? Uh, probably not, to be honest. Like it, it's pretty hard to see how like um, AI bots are going to be winner-take-all. I, I think there's going to be a concentration yeah. of a few AI bots, whether it's like uh, GPT and then, you know, Microsoft and Google and some of these bespoke ones, but I don't necessarily think so. And that's why, to me, this isn't like fundamentally uh, a flaw for Baidu that, that that's just going to keep them out. To me, they're still one of the biggest generative AI players. They're going to build up over time. And, you know, really when we kind of break down what it is that ChatGPT is doing, it hasn't, it hasn't really reached market yet in terms of actually like generating that avenue, turning on the tap, getting a bunch of people through the door who are going to pay for it. And so that gives Baidu a lot of lead time. I think we're talking off this that um, Baidu's CEO was talking about the big step change is AI in like 2017 or something. So as much as people are saying AI is here, AI is here, it's still years down the track. Uh, and to me, like this, uh, this want for Baidu Ernie, the want for Ernie to be perfect is just unrealistic. Leave Ernie alone, Albert. Well, I, I, no, I think it is actually, maybe, maybe I take that back. Maybe if you analogize um, some of these consumer bots as search, then maybe it is yep. a winner takes all, right? Like there's obviously Google in the Western countries and that is effectively a winner takes all with whatever like 80, 90% market share they have in mm. search. Baidu, obviously another winner takes all where they've got the 70 plus percent of market share in China. And so if you're leveraging some of these bots to do generic or basic search functionality, then there probably is a winner take all. And if Baidu's chatbot isn't performing, Obviously, they have a data advantage and they've got like a structural advantage with the network effects and being able to distribute their, their AI into all their products. But if it's not good, then there is an opportunity for someone like Tencent who also has Search to come in and build something 
relatively meaningful, they also have the distribution. So maybe, maybe I do take that back. Maybe there is a winner takes all. Yeah, this is this is an interesting spot because I think the key thing here is when we talk about the different languages being used. So Baidu obviously can work with English and Chinese, ChatGPT predominantly English. Uh, I think that divide is going to keep up. You know, we know that Google isn't used in in China unless you got a VPN, so very very rarely. You can easily see the world where Google kind of takes the Western Hemisphere. The problem, though, for Baidu is, as you said, Albert, they do have Chinese competitors. There is no Google really competing with them in the West, whereas Baidu kind of has to fight off Tencent or the other players. And an interesting third zone, if we want to call it that, where they're going to have to compete with the West is like India now has the biggest population in the world. Who's going to be the generative AI bot that takes over India? Is it going to be a Chinese player? An American player, or is it going to be a, a local Indian player? Yeah, that that's a really good, really good question, and I think that the answer to that is it's almost always going to be localized. And my hypothesis is that because that's where concentration of data is, and in order to build these mm. large language models and use them effectively, you do need data. And so, when you have an aggregator of data like, say, Google in Western countries or Baidu in China, then you get to leverage that to then build a really strong. AI chatbot, for lack of a better word. All right, Albert, anything before we finish up? Uh, no, I think this is a pretty interesting looking business. Obviously, we didn't talk in depth about well, what um, their core business is around like Baidu and their mobile apps. But I think thinking about them as a Chinese Google is analogous. It is interesting seeing them follow a very similar path to Google, pushing into like the verticals of self-driving cars. Internet of Things, smart devices, which is see what Google has done. So I think very, very interesting business. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd be interested to see if they kind of expand outside of China. That little nod towards India as being one of the biggest markets coming up. To me, it's just a really interesting space because I think it's clear now we're going to have two hemispheres of the internet. We're going to have the Chinese hemisphere and we're going to have the Western hemisphere. The real contest is going to be about those kind of edge cases, which India is, is firmly in. So that's an interesting space to watch. Nice. So let's finish up there, Albert. Thank you for listening to the East Meets West podcast, podcasts about understanding Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. Follow, subscribe, and we will catch you next week. See you.